This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. When historian Robin D.G. Kelly published his seminal book, Freedom Dreams, the Black Radical Imagination, in 2002, he hoped to inspire the racial justice activists of that time to find hope in the ideas of visionaries like Malcolm X and C.L.R. James. While poet and activist Aja Monet writes in the foreword of the new 20th anniversary edition of Freedom Dreams, quote, 20 years later, the truths revealed in Kelly's book remain relevant and necessary, especially in the thick, paralyzing despair of a global pandemic. Robin D.G. Kelly is a professor in the Department of African American Studies, distinguished professor of history and the Gary B. Nash Endowed Chair in U.S. History at the University of California, Los Angeles. He joins me to discuss the 20th anniversary republication of his book, Freedom Dreams. Welcome to the program, Robin. Thank you, Sonali. It's so great to be with you always. So 2002, I mean, two decades ago, doesn't seem like that long ago. But of course, we were in a very different time, especially on racial justice. Take us back to that time and give me a sense in your words of what prompted you, what motivated you to write this book that was your interpretation and your kind of presenting of the ideas of these radicals from previous decades for the activists of 2002. Right. No, yes, thanks. You know, it's funny because this is a very different time and in many ways is deja vu. You know, um, we just witnessed the end of the so-called uh, war in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, and in fact, that was a moment when the war, at least formally, began. This is like right around 9-11. Uh, this is a period when we had spent a lot of time uh, the decade before that, not before that, but years before that, fighting the Clinton administration, fighting neoliberalism, uh, fighting, you know, so-called welfare reform, uh, you know, defending uh, LGBTQIA uh, rights. I mean, you know, was in basically struggling for uh, prison abolition. This is the beginnings of the days of uh, critical resistance and the prison moratorium project and and these sorts of things. Uh, so at the same time, you know, what prompted the book, uh, besides having spoken and written about police violence, was the killing of Amadou Diallo and the fact that those who killed him, uh, you know, this is a, uh, for those who don't recall that, um, an immigrant from Guinea who uh, was shot to death by police when he held his hands up and had a wallet in his hands and they assumed it was a, a gun, or at least they said that. And, and after the officers were uh, exonerated, we marched down Fifth Avenue, thousands and thousands of people. In that scene, I recall February 2000 was very much uh, what we witnessed, maybe on a slightly smaller scale uh, in spring 2020. So in many ways, it was kind of deja vu, but one of the things that I think was really different was the sense of um, despair among young people I was teaching at NYU in Columbia at the time. 
uh, young people who really, really wanted to be active, really, really were involved in the struggle, but didn't have a lot of models. Um, the models they knew were the ones were the ones we always looked to. And I was teaching courses on Black social movements and decided to sort of turn this into a book. I also had given a, a talk at Dartmouth uh, where I was sort of reflecting on Dr. King's legacy, but also really thinking about all the movements in the shadow of that legacy that picked up that legacy and really demanded uh, a deeper social transformation, not just in the US, and, 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 but the world. You know, so that was really the context for that moment. And as you, as we've said, and as you write about in the new introduction of this 20th anniversary edition, much has changed in particular, just about two years ago, just over two years ago, we had a massive racial justice uprising. You know, setting the book aside, can you put that into context as a historian now, two years later, of how significant that moment was and your sense of how some of that sentiment, at least among the general population, has waned? Right. Well, you know, in terms of scale, there's a difference between 5,000 people walking up Fifth Avenue and 26 million people coming onto the streets. Um, the the killing of George Floyd caught on film alongside the killing of Breonna Taylor uh, not caught on film in Ahmaud Arbery, that was, th these were sort of the, uh, the tip of the iceberg of a whole series of state of, of state killings of black people, unarmed black people by, by the state and by vigilantes uh, that really escalated during the Obama years. And again, this is this reflects back to the fact that under the Clinton years, as well as under the Obama years, sometimes the most intense struggles against uh, racial violence, gendered violence uh, for justice emerge in opposition to liberal regimes. So here we are with an unprecedented scale, a deeply expansive, multiracial, global movement, uh, which quickly, uh, you know, um, got blowback, you know. So alongside this emergent movement, in the midst of a shift from Obama liberalism to Trump fascism, though carrying some of the same policies, uh, and that's another conversation, um, you know, there's a real sense of a state of emergency. You know, a lot of those people came out to the streets weren't just concerned about state violence, they were concerned about capitalism, about the environment, about the, the potential destruction of the planet, fossil fuels, uh, uh, climate change. They were concerned about violence against transgender people. I mean, it was- a, So it a wasn't just a multiracial uprising, it was a multi-issue uprising, but with racial justice mm -hmm. at its center? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this happens a lot where racial justice issues, especially, you know, anti-Black violence becomes the, the, the sort of vanguard, uh, opening up uh, other kinds of struggles. So those struggles were there, you know, they were there before they became amplified um, and then they got blowback. And so one of the tragedies of that moment was because there was a deeply anti-fascist uh, response to Trumpism, 
uh, there was a tendency on the part of some of the more liberal uh, elements uh, to basically say, look, we need to stop making demands to abolish the police, the kinds of radical demands that came up. And again, they're not new, but they really were amplified in spring of 2020 to abolish the police, to abolish prisons, to basically come up with a completely new system of community safety that dealt with racial and gendered violence, you know, and all of that. And also dealt with security. Because again, what was different, I gotta mention this, is the fact we we're also in the middle of a pandemic that had a deleterious effect, not just on our physical health and mental health, but on the health of the economy globally. So these were really precarious times. So in our effort to try to push Trump out, we ended up suppressing the radical vision, the freedom dreams that erupted in that moment in exchange for a Biden-Harris ticket. And that not only dulled some of the radical elements of the movement, but at the same time, a lot of us, I, I didn't say everyone, but some people weren't, weren't expecting the kind of fascist response of the Capitol Rebellion in January 6th. And so here we are dealing with um, the kind of uh, 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 white backlash, as it were, uh, you know, in response to what was basically decades of struggle for social justice and against uh, uh, state-sanctioned racial violence. Tell me so about, for this 20th anniversary edition now, which comes two years after the, this mass uprising, this mass historic uprising, tell me about your decision to have Aja Monet, a poet, write the foreword to your book. And if that is linked to the, the racial justice uprising, which has been led by a lot of young and radical black and brown folks, but especially young black folks. Aja Monet is special. Um, uh, she is an activist. She's one of the key leaders and dream defenders. She's a poet, an artist, performer, um, writer. And I really honestly didn't think of anyone else but her to write a forward. In fact, um, not only was she uh, a deep reader of the text, she was in the middle of a, um, a reading group that had been spending a lot of time with Freedom Dreams and we were in conversation. And, I, and she really understood the book. Not only that, but you know, when people read it, they'll learn that um, she and her comrades actually enacted something that I had imagined um, but of course, she wasn't aware of it. Uh, that is the idea of Maroon Poets. She created a Maroon Poetry Festival and did everything in organizing that festival that I imagine uh, the Maroon Poets would do as a revolutionary insurgency. Um, so she was ideal. A poet makes perfect sense in a book that, uh, that centers on poetry as revolutionary practice. You know, the book... Uh, was unusual in that I had a chapter on surrealism as part of a Black radical tradition, which is something that you know wasn't talked about a lot uh, before 2002. Um, and so in many ways, she embodies the, um, the spirit, the collective consciousness, 
the engagement with social movements, everything that uh, produces uh, Freedom Greens. Robin D.G. Kelly, I'm wondering if you can read an excerpt from the new introduction to the 20th anniversary publication of your book, Freedom Dreams, a Black Radical Imagination. I'd be happy to. Um, okay. In the face of growing pessimism, freedom dreams may come across as too hopeful and optimistic in these dark times, but the book is hardly optimistic. In fact, the word optimism never appears in the book, only optimistic in the title of Jane Cortez's poem, which is a critique of being cheerful and optimistic in the face of catastrophe. Nor does the word pessimism appear, although pessimistic comes up once in describing the post-emancipation generation's outlook on the future. When I use the word hope, it does, does not mean wishful thinking or even dreaming. The Black radical imagination is not a kind of dream state conjured and nurtured independent of the day-to-day -day struggle on the ground, but rather is forged in collective movements. My central point is that we cannot divorce critical analysis from social movements. The challenges of solidarity in a deep understanding of the mechanisms of oppression generate the conditions and requirements for new modes of analysis, new ways of being together. Therefore, it is not enough to imagine a world without oppression, especially since we don't always recognize the ways in which we ourselves practice and perpetuate oppression. We must also understand the mechanisms or processes that not only reproduce subjugation and exploitation, but make them common sense and render them natural or invisible. And that is Robin D.G. Kelly reading from the new introduction to his book, Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination, whose 20th anniversary publication by Beacon Press is out. Robin, one of the things that I get from what you just read was that deep analysis is required. Um, and that seems to be something that is set apart this new chapter in racial justice, that, that the, the demands, the asks are for the obvious, which is, of course, ending police brutality and re-envisioning how we think about public safety, but also the not so obvious, which is that all of this, these systems are part of a broader capitalist framework that needs to be deeply examined. So that deep analysis how important is it for people who are invested in the movement for, for racial justice to explore that? Um, right. You know, it's, it's easy to walk on the street and march with a sign. It's a lot more difficult to sustain movements, right. right? Right. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because the whole book is about the not so obvious and about the sources of new ideas. So. In many ways, this book is against punditry. <laughs> no, I'm so tired of pundits because the idea of punditry is that someone who's supposed to be really smart uh, gets on some media and starts spout, you know, spouting out about you know what needs to be done or why this is the case. Or and I think what worse, I, what they think will happen, which can be right. so limiting to our imagination. Absolutely, they're they, they're going to predict what's next. Um, and then they get so many likes that they can get, get it right. Um, but the fact is social movements 
are the incubators of new knowledge. This is the point of the book. And this is what we saw uh, spring 2020, that you know, part of what I was trying to suggest is that what erupted after George Floyd's uh, murder was the manifestation of a decade or two decades of organizing, thinking, reflecting, and more organizing. Um, the idea to abolish the police seems like a pipe dream, but when you think about it in terms of the kind of deep analysis, it makes perfect sense. Um, when you think about the relationship between policing uh, and um, housing insecurity and the utter failure of our medical system to keep people safe, you know, or to charge people a lot of money to be able to get basic medicines. I mean, all these things are tied together, they're bound up together. And part of what emerges from social from these social movements is a critique of the way that racial capitalism basically is a foundation for all of these systems, how co colonialism is a basis for all these systems. Um, and so what we end up seeing is what you don't see. That is the hard work of thinking through the problems we're faced with, but seeing the links between them so that we don't simply say we want body cams, you know, or we want better training for police officers, or somehow we would like to have, um, you know, a reduction in the cost of, of our uh, uh, prescription drugs. We need single-payer healthcare. We need to end capitalism itself. We need to end these forms of state violence as a whole and see how they're all tied together. I mean, so that's what um, I think movements teach us. And they're not necessarily trying to predict the future, but make the future based on their understanding of reality. And so as a uh, historian of social movements, looking back, as your book suggests, is also important to help um, be inspired by how to look forward. So how, how do the visions of black radicals from the you know, civil rights era, the post-civil rights era, the pan-Africanist era, the, the, those visionaries like Malcolm X, how did, how did their ideas remain relevant to today? Well, you know, I think there are two things. One is that a lot of their ideas, and when I say they, I really am referring less to the well-known figures, um, and and that's that's Beacon's marketing. They they like <laughs> they like to name names, but I'm talking about the people who are really unnamed, the grassroots members of the Revolutionary Action Movement, um, those who fought for reparations in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, the uh, the activists who um, uh, were part of the Combahee River Collective, uh, who were part of the Black feminist insurgencies throughout the 20th century, uh, people whose names we kind of know, sometimes don't know. And I think for them, the lesson is, it isn't so much the way that we can lift their ideas and project them forward, it's the way that they understood their conditions at the moment and tried to push past those conditions to imagine a solution 
that was more uh, permanent. In other words, that was more revolutionary. And in actually, how they got there. I'm so glad you brought up the Revolutionary Action Movement. Um, most of us have not heard of this grouping. It was semi underground. Um, but are there lessons in the formation of such movements? Because one of the things you do in your book is create the uh, backdrop that we can imagine uh, had to have been there in order for groups like this uh, to emerge, the conversations that led to them, the circumstances, some of right. which are very different from today and some of which are not so different, right? Yes, exactly. And one of the things that the Revolutionary Action Movement's history uh, speaks to is why the the kind of periodization that we uh, have adopted, that is civil rights begets black power, begets hope, all these different things. This, the RAM was formed really in 1962 in the middle of what we think of as the heyday of civil rights. They were not a civil rights organization. They were a revolutionary action organization. Their politics were inspired uh, not only by the long history of things like Reconstruction in the 19th century, but by what was happening in China, what was happening in African liberation movements, what was happening in the Caribbean. Um, their, their perspective was global. They had a critique of Dr. Martin Luther King and the critique of the mainstream uh, uh, civil rights organizations and of liberalism. And for them, they were calling for world revolution. When the uh, urban rebellions erupted in Harlem in 1964, Watson in 65, uh, Detroit and Newark in 67, they were calling for world revolution. You know, They were saying that we need to develop a certain form of guerrilla warfare and create liberated zones so that we could be free from American imperialism. They came up with the, the, the language of Bandung humanism. You know, a lot of people thought this is something that's recent. They came up with that idea that we are humanists built, you know, followers of the um, non-aligned movement in Bandung, Indonesia, after that meeting, where all these nations came together and said, we're not gonna follow the Soviets or the US. So what does it tell us? It tells us that a lot of the most radical movements that emerged out of the Black tradition never were limited to the United States, never were bounded by the, the national uh, borders of this nation, um, but had a much more expansive political imagination, were in conversation with other people. Uh, and so suddenly 1962 looks completely different than what we thought it did. This is the year before the March in Washington. Another aspect of your book uh, and, and the history that you explore that's not so well known is the deep and long history of the demand for reparations. Um, we are seeing movement around reparations today, even at the state level, which is exciting. But that goes back many, many years. Uh, and I'm wondering if you can give us that brief look at how the demand for reparations evolved as a radical demand and what that can do to guide us or how that can guide us in the moment that we're in today. Right. Well, the beginning of the movement for reparations for enslavement begins at the very moment when, uh, in fact, before slavery was over. Um, what we learned, of course, is that there was reparations, but those reparations came from the 
federal government to slave holders because they lost their property. That's a problem living in the capitalist system where you know human beings are considered property and the Fifth Amendment gives the slaveholders the right to be compensated. So move forward, you had this movement consistently through the 19th century through uh, Mrs. Callie House and that movement for in the name of pensions, which was really a form of reparations, all the way through Queen Mother Moore. Uh, it's interesting that Black women were, have been at the forefront of these struggles. One of the points I make in that chapter, though, is that the most radical demands for reparations emerging out of Queen Mother Moore, out of the um, uh, uh, the Black um, uh, uh, Manifesto, which was a reparations demand, was not to give the descendants of slaves a bunch of money and say goodbye, but rather to demand money that would become the collective seed money for social movements, for revolutionary movements. The Black Manifesto called for things like millions of dollars to support the African liberation movement, millions of dollars to support the National Welfare Rights Organization, millions of dollars to, to build what they called Black colleges, because they said that the so-called Negro colleges were not really Black colleges. Um, they wanted to build infrastructure, they wanted to support movements, and really not just liberate themselves as a people, but liberate all of humankind by building a revolutionary movement that could transform the United States and end what they call the Yankee imperialism. I mean, that was a project. Right now, reparations has become almost um, a parlor game for some. Hmm. That is to say, you know, we, we use Venmo to get white people to give us some money. You know, really? <laughs> That's reparations? Or, or the or the worst, this, this um, movement um, in the name of African-American uh, descendants of slavery who are saying, we only want money for those people who are African-American, very patriotic, very nationalist, very jingoistic, uh, who can prove that they're descendants of slaves. In other words, they got to have a, a, a subscription to Ancestry.com. You have the documents, you prove it, and you get your money. That's not the way reparations was imagined as a movement. And we need to return to that. We need to think about this as a global um, uh, uh, act of violence that's tied to colonialism and that, in fact, is responsible for the climate catastrophe and many of the things that we're facing today. Um, the idea of reparations is to repair. And if you repair the condition of the descendants of people who've been enslaved, who've been stolen, who had their money stolen from banks, who had their property uh, devalued over time, then you can transform the nation and the world for the betterment of everybody. That is the point. And you cannot have reparations, honestly, without ending racial capitalism. Well, uh, finally, Robin, are you hopeful for the next few years, given that, as we talked about earlier, the backlash to the 2020 racial justice mass uprising was swift, was uh, diluted by uh, the Biden-Harris administration, you know, Biden very openly being pro-police um, and, you know, people aligning behind him because Trump. Um, so, so, so what, what, can, what can you as a historian, I'm sort of asking you to do some punditry here reluctantly, <laughs> what can you say about the next few years for racial justice? 
Well, I can't do punditry, but I can say is this. Um, uh, hopeful, uh, I would say determined, because we really don't have a choice. Mm. We don't have a choice. We can't, we can't think of anything but trying to figure out a way to stop this catastrophe. Now, here are two things. One, we have been here before. For some of us, for your descendants, my descendants, we've already faced ongoing fascism that wasn't called that. <laughs> so we, we've been here before. Uh, for a lot of white people, middle-class white people, this is new. Like they've not experienced this before. And so we, we don't really have a choice. Um, you know, there will be crimes and misdemeanors and people will be prosecuted. But to me, that's not the bigger issue. The bigger issue is how do we return back to those revolutionary visions to not just punish people who have tried to steal elections and hold power, but completely revamp power, take power, power to the people to transform this society into something that is actually livable, that's based on love and community, and really based on the abolition of all forms of oppression. That's the ask. And we have to do that because if we don't do that, we won't be here in several generations. There will be no planet. I want to thank you so much, as always, Robin, for joining us today. Best of luck to you for the 20th anniversary edition of your book, Freedom Dreams. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. My guest has been Robin D.G. Kelly. Uh, he is a professor in the Department of African-American Studies, distinguished professor of history and the Gary B. Nash Endowed Chair in U.S. History at UCLA. And his path-breaking and highly acclaimed 2002 book, Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination, has just been republished by Beacon Press on its 20th anniversary. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com. By becoming a subscriber, find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Are You With Sonali?